Hello and welcome to the Divine Renovation Podcast, where we seek to inspire and equip you to move your parish from maintenance to mission. My name's Dan O'Rourke, and today we're going to be joined very shortly by a, a bishop, uh, Bishop Tom Dowd from the Archdiocese of Montreal. will be able to join us, and he's going to be talking about both his experience as a bishop and also what it's like to be part of a, a, a diocese that's looking to embrace mission. Now, before we get to, to Arch, or before we get to Bishop Tom... You almost gave him a promotion almost, there, Dan. Yeah, <laughs> it's amazing the power you have when you've got a microphone. (laughs) (laughs) Apologies. But it's good to see Ron Huntley this morning. And and how are you doing, buddy? I'm fantastic. Thanks, Dan. It it really is a pleasure to to hang out with you on set. We don't get to hang out quite enough. And it's also good to see my buddy, (laughs) (laughs) So I'm I'm teasing you, Father James, because you said, why do you call me buddy? It's a Canadian thing. And and so, you know, I think... You should probably define that for our non-Canadian listeners. It means like pal, friend, chum. It's a very Canadian thing, isn't it? I didn't realize that because I spend most yeah. of my time in Canada. So I know you travel around the globe, so you're more conscious yeah. of those terms That's than right. I am. But I call everybody buddy around here. So yeah. Everybody's buddy. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of buddies, can I, tell, can I share a short story? So a little while ago, we um, we had Charlie Vaughn on this podcast. Yes. Now, for those who've caught the episode, Charlie Vaughn, uh, he took the men's gym from St. Benedict Parish, which is the men's group that was meeting bright and early in the morning. And he, he, he started his own uh, in, a, in, in a parish that's about 20, 30 minutes away. And it's called FM 645, and Friday men, 645, 645 a.m. is when they meet. And anyway, so he had come, we, we brought him on the podcast to share the story and, and about like, how can a, what are, what's something a parishioner can do? Right. And, and so he was, you know, he's like, well, this is one thing I was able to do. I started this men's group and uh, it, it followed that same format that uh, St. Benedict Parish launched uh, with you, Ron. And anyway, so to the last one, they had 32 people, the biggest number they've ever had. So Go 32 on. people, 32 men showed up at 6.45 a.m. <laughs> for prayer <laughs> and praise. And, and so it's just amazing how big it's gotten. But here's what, I, here's what I wanted to share. He shared with me this morning that he heard from someone someone who watched the podcast uh, because his priest told him that he needed, so some guy down in Florida had watched the podcast oh because boy. his priest had told him, you should watch this podcast, I gather, because the priest saw him, like, you might be able to do this in our parish. I just love that that, that sort of the That's way that so the stuff cool. kind of spreads in the energy. And so it got me really excited. That is exciting. <laughs> so if, any, if you're listening to this podcast right now and you're saying, hey, in fact, I started one too, send us an email. Yeah, and let right? us know because we would love to hear and celebrate what's happening globally in terms of the movement of divine renovation and how people are being inspired. We just, it just fills our tank. And it's not just about men. Uh, on that episode, I know we had Jen right. Ferrier who, who had done the similar thing for, for women and it had a different name, uh, but the same idea. So it's just exciting when these things, you, you see it sort of spreading around. Uh, so the other thing uh, that's going on that 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 seems really uh, relevant to me is I was sick, <laughs> and and while I was sick, I, I I had some time for YouTube, and I was I, I was watching a lot of the YouTube. Um, there's a lot of YouTubers out there, yep. and a lot of them talking about Catholic stuff, and some of it, frankly, it got my. <laughs> Some of, I found it a little frustrating. I felt like some of the conversations they were having were, were you know, they're, they're creating these dichotomies between the trads and the meaning the traditionals and and sort of the 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 the, uh, the more liberals. And the, anyways, I was just it, it felt very. I don't know what the right word is. It's infighting is what it is. It's family what? fighting and it's putting it out in a public forum. And I think it's the it's one of the great symptoms of of an inward focused church. And you know, as Pope Francis and I, I, I quote Pope Francis here intentionally because. A lot of these these folks who are more in the traditional side, unfortunately, they they don't seem to be very Catholic when it comes to the Pope. They seem to be quite dismissive. And uh, but but he said, you know, he talks about an inward focused church being self referential, and there's a lot of self referentiality going on, and it's very unattractive to those on the outside. If if our primary disposition is to meet those on the outside, connect with them, then this is very unappealing, and and really goes against you know what Scripture says. You know, make every effort. To be to be one of mind and heart, uh, and and this is it's very divisive, and and there seems to be a groundswell of this stuff. The numbers of, on this stuff is huge. Like I couldn't believe like the the number the view counts. So the number of people who are in watching. one week forty thousand people watching these almost rants against against uh, some some key leaders in the church. And I'm not saying that that no no leadership is beyond critique. I mean that's mm-hmm. that's one of the, one of the values we have is 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 True. authentic feedback and in healthy conflict and all of this. But I'm not sure how healthy this stuff is. Yeah, there's a line between health and, and toxicity. And I think we need to be responsible for that personally, whether you're a leader or a lay person who's upset we need to check ourselves because we do more damage than good. It might make you feel good at the moment yeah. and get all these likes and views or whatever it might make you feel good. But what are you doing anyway? 
and negativity kind of feeds itself. It becomes oh, uh, uh, the the appetite for it grows, and I I don't think it's very it's really rooted in a missionary disposition per se. You know, I think of of three possible stances of the church in relation to the world. One, one is accommodation, which means, you know, let's just give in and embrace the values of the world and maybe we can win the world over. As Pope Benedict said years ago, that experiment is done and, and it failed. Uh, another uh, approach is isolationism, which is sees the world as the enemy, as the threat to the purity of the church. And therefore, let's get on an island, raise the drawbridge and build high walls and post guards at the door. Let's only let in people who look like us and sound like us. And let's have more arcane language so that we're, we're, we're harder to reach. But I think the real stance of the church, missionary stance, is that of engagement. I mean, so if you think of the image of the church on an island, let's lower the drawbridge and cross it yeah. and pitch a tent amongst the people <laughs> we're called to reach. Because someone else left his home to pitch a tent in our midst. So I think we just celebrated a while back the Feast of Christmas. And this, the whole, that's just the disposition of God. Amen. That God so loved the world that he sent his only son and Jesus pitched his tent. Um, uh, though in the form of God, he did not deem equality with God something to be grasped at. He emptied himself. So, but a lot of people on on this side of the debate view any attempt to engage with great suspicion. They see engagement as a sellout. I know, mm. and that's what's heartbreaking. And I don't see a lot of this stuff. It's like anything in terms of a spirit of discernment. When you finish listening to this stuff using like say Ignatian principles, how do you feel? I, I, I know how I feel. I feel, like feel I feel icky. I feel yeah. gross. I feel slimy. You know what it's, it reminds me of? So, so you guys would know that I used to, in a previous life, not that long ago, I used to be uh, closely connected with, with politics and government and here in Canada. And so I used to be a real close politics watcher as a result, right? Both Canadian politics, but also international. And, and given that we're so close to the border, also American politics. Uh, and so, so I, I used to watch this stuff very closely, the politics, I mean, and you know what this reminds me of is it's sort of, it's, it's, there's there's really good shows and commentary on politics and then there's really toxic shows yes. and, and commentaries on politics and both get good ratings and in point of fact I suspect the toxic stuff gets better ratings and and a lot of what I was mm. seeing online felt the same it's like when you yes. watch those toxic po- political commentary shows it's it felt like that to me and, I, and yeah. I, you know you, you want to rage like part of me is like yeah because I, I do agree with some of the things I'm hearing I'm like yes I agree with that mm-hmm. but look at what is it doing to me how is it making me feel and how is it like it the, the, the reaction the internal reaction I have is not a positive one. Yeah. And I think so. You know, the fact that we've got Bishop Tom coming on in a, in a few moments, he was actually, um, I remember when he was ordained a bishop, but one of the things that, that was interesting about him and made news was that he was a guy who, who really engaged in social media. You know, now it's quite popular bishops all over the place or on Twitter and all of this, but he was, uh, he was one of the, I think uh, he used Twitter very early on in his ministry and was very uh, fairly savvy in terms of the world of social media. But it seems to me that, that the ch- official church leadership, especially with the bishops, and many say that there's, they're, they're not very present in, in, in those fora. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I'm wondering even if they're aware. I think of a couple of weeks back when we had Archbishop Mancini on our podcast, he said, up until today, I didn't even know what a podcast was. <laughs> and yet we have these kind of, you know... These podcasts that are, you know, attracting hundreds, collectively hundreds of thousands of views mm. per week, and they're 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 communicating a narrative that is very toxic and negative and. I can you know, so how do we how do we respond to that? Again? I remember years ago. I can remember talking to you years ago, back when you had founded uh, John Paul II Media Institute. Part of what you had talked about at that time was you, you felt a call to engage in, yes. the, in the media of the day. Now, of course, that was far enough back that social media. I mean, this is like uh, it might even be pre Facebook, if, if memory serves. It would be in that realm of when Facebook was was launching. But you were already at that point as a as a young priest. Uh, you were like, we got to figure out ways to engage. And and so I don't know what drove you back then, but man, like. I, I feel like we, we never actually lived out in, in the way that we needed to. And I mean, you know, I'm talking about the, the church. I don't think we ever lived it out in the way that we needed to, to engage properly on those mediums. Well, I know as well as, you know, my involvement as a, in still, in, although I'm not pastor of St. Benedict, still involved in, but especially in the wake of all of the, you know, the leadership crisis in the States and all of the, 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 the terrible headlines that we've been dealing with. And, and rightly so, there's, there's a just anger, there's a frustration, and I'm okay with that. I mean, I've experienced it too. And like you, I don't disagree with everything that these people say, 
But I know that 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 kind of negative frenzy has sucked in a lot of our parishioners and even people who mm. who were the fruit of our mission work, people who have returned to the church or come to the church for the first time, they've been caught up on this and the impact on their faith life and their desire to live faithfully and joyful lives for Jesus has been deeply, deeply impacted. So if you judge a tree by its fruit, what is the fruit of this? I'm not saying there's not a place for legitimate critique and legitimate conversation, but I would say that that a lot of this stuff is is sapping the vital energy of the church. And if you want to talk about the attack of the enemy and how the evil one is attacking the church, yes, we can look at these leaders and these events and and perhaps his footprints are there too. But I think there's he's getting much greater impact and what's and through these other channels. And what I would say too to those of you, if there's anyone listening who actually is engaged in that type of media, it's probably coming from a place of hurt and pain. Mm. And I know what I can get like when I'm hurt. Mm. And and I it can be a very toxic place. And and I know the impact I can have from a toxic perspective in leadership. And it's hap- it's it rears its ugly head at St. Benedict, mm. sometimes even in this ministry. And I have you guys to to call me out and to to care for me in mm. terms of where's this coming from? Because however you're responding right now isn't isn't consistent with what we're trying to deal with. And you guys love me enough to bring me to a place of hell. And I hope that, you know, if you're listening to this podcast and you have some friends that are negatively impacting this, this, these conversations, or maybe you're one of those people, will you allow yourself? Do you have people around you that love you enough to bring you to a place of health and not let you be toxic in a form that brings other people down? Like, let's help each other to, to deal with our pain and our hurt and all those other things that are real and legitimate in ways that don't cause damage to the kingdom and to other people because it's not helpful. And if we don't hold each other accountable, (laughs) if we don't hold each other accountable, we don't have a hope. And so let's not let somebody make a fool of themselves. I remember years ago, Lionel Richie, uh, his daughter, I I don't know her, but she was very public and, and she had a meltdown with drugs and things like that. And and he said, thank goodness they didn't have all the social media when I was her age because I don't know if I would have had any better of an outcome than she's having, but unfortunately she's having a meltdown in the public world, which we live in now. And, and there's a lot of truth to that. And so, you know, if you're hurting and everything else, like get help and, and, and pray and, but for heaven's sakes, don't, don't, don't make social media mm. your outlet for healing and be cathartic in social media. Cause you're doing the world a disservice. Yeah. So from the outset of this podcast, I almost gave the bishop a promotion uh, to, to Arch. Uh, but I do want to take a moment and brag about my own promotion. Uh, I received a promotion recently. Did you, are you aware of this, guys? Uh, uh, did you get an extra piece of bacon? Father Simon Lobo promoted me to sit on the pastoral council at oh, St. Benedict cool. Parish. So I don't, yeah, I'll sign later. You're, you're, you're the various eight by 10 glossies <laughs> that you guys have brought. Um, but, but Ron, you know, one of the things that I think that we encounter a lot is that is, you know, the difference in the distinction between the role of the PPC and, and the SLT, there's all my, all my acronyms uh, that I can put into <laughs> one. So the senior leadership team and the, the parish pastoral council. And so what do you talk, what do you share when, when, when parishes or when pastors come to you with that kind of a question? Well, help me understand, Ron. It's very common because as pastors begin to lead out of a senior leadership team, it, it, it's a different model of leadership and it's yeah. transformational. Like it's yeah. not small. And so it really shifts the, the, the nature of how people see leadership in a church in general. And so there is confusion, I would say every single time. And so mm-hmm. if you're feeling that you're not alone and it's okay, but the fundamental, fundamental question I get to every time is I say, you know, what is the people's disposition on parish pastoral council? It should be. And this is of my opinion. I'd love to hear yours, father James, but how can I love and serve my pastor and this parish. That has to be the fundamental disposition of everyone on the parish pastoral council. The other thing I see, and and this seems to be revolutionary for people too, is just like every other team in a church, every other ministry, it's led well. That's what we seek to do with divine renovation. Everything must, we seek that everything be led well. And that includes parish pastoral council. And so if you're the chair of the parish pastoral council, I would suggest that your role is not simply to run a good meeting, although that's really important because nothing worse than being in a boring meeting. But I would also say that it's your responsibility that you bring unanimity of vision to your team. Yes. You bring health. Uh, you allow you get to a place where people can engage in healthy conflict and build vulnerability-based trust, not unlike every other team we expect. Well, that's the thing. We talk about the four non-negotiables of a senior leadership team, but if you want a healthy, well-functioning, high-impact team, 
those those non-negotiables apply to every <laughs> single team. You know, one of the key things and the difference is to look basically at at, at, at the why behind them. What, what's the purpose of each? And, and parish pastoral council needs to shift from what it often has been in parishes to be primarily about uh, vision and big picture strategy, whereas the senior leadership team is a team that comes around the pastor to help implement that strategy. So you might have lower end strategic discussions, uh, but a lot of what you're dealing with are tactical issues, the decisions that come up as you're executing. And and those are very different things. That's why uh, uh, SLT needs to meet every single week because you're dealing with stuff that a, a parish council could never deal with. And, but the danger of an SLT without a parish pastoral council is that you get caught in the weeds. Uh, you need to constantly have moments where you broaden your 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 consultation and broaden your base of of, of leadership. So there's there's a necessary tension between the two. Uh, if it works, if the tension is is in the right place. SLT members are going to feel frustrated by having to go to parish pastor council meetings. <laughs> I don't know what you're it's talking gonna, about. It's, yeah, because we're all about let's get it done, let's let's get it moving, let's execute. But to even stop four or five times a year and to and to and to hear the bigger a sense from from the broader community, people who are on board with the vision. So it's not That's people right. just just criticizing. I don't like this. I don't like that. Or I'm protecting my turf. But to listen. But I think a key part of it as well is that. Your SLT members need to be on your parish pastoral council. That was something that we experienced in the early years as we began to mobilize when we struggled with this is that the the bigger the church is and when you eventually mobilize for mission, uh, a lot of key things are going to be driven by staff members. And yes. I was having meetings with parish pastoral council and our key people weren't around the table and it was just a total disconnect. It made no sense. So you have to have, SLT have to be, a part of the parish pastoral council well, process. As, as the resident expert on parish pastoral councils, <laughs> I have, after all, been to one meeting so far. And I presume I'm not fired. By the time this episode comes out, I might have been. Um, but but I, what I appreciate was, you know, at St. Benedict Parish, Father Simon has been very clear that uh, SLT members are going to be uh, attending parish mm-hmm. pastoral council meetings. Yeah. And that in his in his case, what he's, he's opting to do is he's rotating a couple of them through. So it's not the same SLT member that comes all the time, but instead he's, he's getting creating some some sense of variety so that everyone can feel the uh, the relationship and, and and I think some of that tension. So uh, and, and I think let me just before um before we move on too further, I just have a question for you, Father James. Uh, when you were at um at St. Benedict, when you were pastor at St. Benedict Parish, you had an SLT team, but you also had like a key person. And, and if, if I'm fair in saying that your key person might have been Ron, um, it, it, would it be fair to say that? Like, did you have one person who you worked very closely with and was it Ron and did you survive? Well, I, uh, yeah, I, I think looking back, of course it was Ron. I mean, he was one of the, he was the very first hire that I brought on board and there was a sense of, of working with Ron to begin with. And I think, you know, if you think of uh, the ministry of Jesus, you know, he had the 12, there were the 72, there were the disciples, there was even the group of people who journeyed with him. And But within the 12, there was a group of three other people who, like Peter, James, and John, they were as kind of like an SLT. You know, he invested and in, spent in them and spent time with them in a unique way that was different from the 12. But within that SLT, there was Jesus in one sense, you could say had a right-hand person, it was Peter, right? And I think it's good. In fact, a conversation I had with uh, the pastors in our network these past few weeks, we, we have a, a monthly session with pastors, and I asked them that question, who's your right-hand person? And many, some of them had said, you know, I've never really thought about that. Mm-hmm. And I said, who's your most important person and why? Like, t- tell me why that person is, 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 is most important. And oftentimes it was a question not so much of, well, this person does this, does that, and does this, as, as it was that this person really brings balance to my leadership. And they're able to put their finger on an area of weakness and how that person brings balance. How did you ask that question? Because it's funny how you ask it. Well, I said, well, first of all, I, 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 I told a story yes. of a couple of years ago. You yeah. may remember this. We were in London and a speaker was talking about uh, a member of his team told him they were, they were, he or she was moving on. And he said, I, when I heard that news that this team member was leaving, I, I thought I was going to throw up. I, th- I really thought I was going to vomit. And he asked the, the crowd, the, the gathered audience, who's your vomit person? <laughs> not, not the person who makes you vomit, but the person who, at the thought of them leaving would make you want to throw up. And afterwards you said to me, Father James, who's your vomit person? And I was, at that time I was like, you know, I don't, that's a good question. Mm-hmm. And so I asked, that was the question I asked, who's your vomit person? Why? And then I asked, have you, 
have you told that person how important he or she is to you? And some people is like, well, you know, that's kind of awkward. I'm not sure I would do that. And But even looking at the model of, of the ministry of Jesus, think about his relationship with Peter. You know, he communicated Peter's importance in many ways by, by being with him. But I think two times in particular, one, where he affirmed Peter publicly in front of others. And secondly, when he affirmed him privately, Matthew 16, you are Peter on this rock, I will build my church. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Uh, he said this in front of the 12. Mm. That might've been a bit awkward, but he, he affirmed him in some way, in a public way. But then I think of John 21 in the beach after the resurrection, mm. uh, after the denials of mm. Peter, when Jesus asked three times, do you love me? And he says, feed my lambs, feed my sheep, feed, feed my lambs. There was this kind of private personal affirmation. So that needs to know who are your key people? Why? Why is that person so key? And how have you affirmed that person? And the final question we looked at was, how does that person like to be recognized or, or affirmed or supported? Don't make presumptions around mm. that. Don't presume, because we often presume how I like to be supported or recognized is obviously how everyone likes to be supported and recognized. And that's a bit of a no-no. Have that conversation about when, you know, when you're, when you, what's the best recognition you ever had? And when you want to be recognized, how would you like that to happen? Mm. So those were some of the conversations we had. Well, and I would say too that, you know, that vomit person, everyone around you, that's a terrible term, but it actually drives the point home. But, you know, I think in many ways, you know, I know I was a key part for you in terms of our friendship, but also in terms of driving ministry and having a just a unrelenting passion for what's possible in ministry. But man, you take Kate out of the picture, we'd have been a train wreck. I mean, absolute, utter train wreck. And you take Rob out of the picture and we would have missed out on half the conversations we should have been having. And so every one of them, mm. you know, again, any one of them left, again, I would have got sick. That's the goal. That's the goal. It's it's a, those non-negotiables on every team and on every team vomit people. Right. That's a lot of vomit. <laughs> Just a lot of cleanup on aisle three. I don't know. But only if they laughed. Only if they laughed. <laughs> only if they laughed. On that note, we're going to take a brief break <laughs> and we're going to be right back with Bishop Dowd. And welcome back. And a special welcome to you, Bishop Tom. It is such a pleasure for you to be able to join us here. Uh, you're, you're the auxiliary bishop in, in Montreal. And, and you know, you've... Father James has always spoken so highly of, of both your, your your compassion and your ability as uh, in leadership, but also your sense of mission. And and apparently, and I didn't know this until today, you are uh, uh, the first bishop tweeter, which uh, <laughs> I think, you know, I don't know if there's a, a t-shirt. It's probably more exciting than the vomit <laughs> shirt that Ron was going to be handing out to people today. But it's, it's so cool to have you on the podcast. So thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Uh, so uh, there's there's a lot we we'd love to to cover with you today, Bishop. Um, but first, I'd like to have a uh, you're, you're in you're in Montreal, Canada. So that's that's Quebec. Um, for for those who are, who are listening, uh, I want to know though, do you guys say buddy in, uh, and do you call people buddy? <laughs> I think that's Montreal. an Atlantic thing. <laughs> I think it's an Atlantic thing. Well, I, I'd like to think of you as being my buddy, even if it's an Atlantic <laughs> thing. I, I accept it. I accept it. That's yeah. great. <laughs> so uh, help me understand um, a little bit of your own story, Bishop. So uh, what was your call like and how did you find yourself both in the priesthood and then eventually uh, wearing the uh, the big hat? Well, with regards to priesthood, I can say that uh, I'm one of those people who kind of always had the call, uh, even when I was a kid, but it doesn't necessarily mean that I recognized it as such. It's often clearer when you look back. Mm. Uh, so I tell people, you know, when I was little, I wanted to be a priest, but I also wanted to be a fireman, and I wanted to be an astronaut, <laughs> and I wanted to be a cowboy, you know. That would uh, be the coolest priest so ever. As I, as as I got older, <laughs> astronaut and cowboy kind of dropped off the list, you know. Uh, other things took their place. I actually wound up studying business in university, international business and finance, and I uh, loved it, really enjoyed it. Priesthood was still a vocational option, but, you know, at that point, you're starting to discern the possibility of marriage, where's, you know, where do I call to be, that sort of thing. At the end of university, I went through what a lot of people call their crisis of faith, you know, where you go through an intense period of questioning. And it was a challenging time, but it was also, I think, ultimately a healthy one, at least for me, because before I went through that, I tell people, before that experience, I believed because I was Catholic. Mm. But after that experience, I was Catholic because I believed. Mm. Oh, love that. And, and that, that was a big shift. I wound up coming full circle, 
but that was a big shift. And so at that point, my discernment of priesthood really kicked into high gear. It wasn't just a, an idea. It was something serious. Uh, mm-hmm. I had to decide, like, for example, if I was to date someone, I realized I'd be, I'd be kind of two-timing her because I was also considering this other thing. It wouldn't be fair to mm-hmm. me or the other person. So I uh, sort of baby-stepped my way into the seminary and then into the priesthood. With regards to being a bishop, it's, of course, completely different. Uh, You don't do your own personal discernment so much. You get about 15 minutes to do that uh, when when you get called to the uh, meet the nuncio. And so I I received a phone call. Uh, I still remember it was... uh, and you're, you're, you're very, fairly young, right? Very Bishop, warm I mean, like summer fairly, day. You, you look, Sorry? You're, you're fairly young. So people who are watching would be able to see that you're, you're, you're a young looking guy. Uh, but people listening wouldn't be able God to tell. God bless you. Yes. Okay. So. <laughs> but you, so you would have been fairly young when, when you got that. I was 40. Call. I was 40. 40. Wow. Huh. Yeah. So that's, uh, it's on the lower end. I was the second youngest bishop in the world when I was named. Wow. So uh, just to put it in perspective, um, one of the advantages of being named a bishop quite young is you don't come into this with the illusion that you know what you're doing. Hmm. So, uh, you know, I, I kind of put myself in intense learning mode. And and that's really one of my, my personality styles, you might say, uh, to be a learner. And so I'm, I'm always trying to read, to assess, to, to and but not just gather data for the sake of it, but to see how it fits into a broader vision. That's one of the gifts God gave me. And I guess it's one of the reasons he put me where I am. And your 15 minutes of discernment went well, uh, after all you, you accepted and, uh, <laughs> well, yeah, you know, uh, he, uh, he says, this is the, what we've, the Pope is calling you to do what we've discerned. Uh, do you accept? And I said to him, well, you know, I, I mean, I'm really not sure I'm the right guy for the job. I'm, I'm quite imperfect in many respects. And he said, well, this is not a canonization ceremony. We're just <laughs> asking to see if, you know, you, uh, we, we've discerned this in you, and it's up to you to see if you see it in yourself. And I said, well, I'm willing to trust. And that was it. Hmm. That's beautiful. That's sure. beautiful. I'd be interested, uh, Bishop Tom, like when you did have your time of crisis in university, you know, what was the thing that brought you back? What was the thing that connected you, that anchored you again in the love of Jesus? Like, what, what happened? Well, really, it was a quest for truth. For me, I had gone through an experience, uh, I think that a lot of people go through, where you recognize the imperfections in the church, which really aren't imperfections in the church, they're imperfections in the people you meet in the church, who perhaps you've had illusions about, you know? Uh, And so, encountering those situations really, and, and some of them, very challenging, really made me say to myself, hang on a second, if I'm going to be involved in this faith, because for me, faith was not just a private matter, it involved worship, it involved community, it involved, you know, getting involved in some way. If I'm going to do this, then I need to reassess the things that I've sort of taken for granted. Right. And so, I went on a journey of truth. You know, I, I figured, uh, I have to at least look at the truths this faith is teaching. I recognize people are imperfect everywhere. You know, you got to take the good with the bad. But I had never really done that assessment. So I read the spiritual books from, you know, every major religious tradition. I read the Quran cover to cover. Uh, I read the Hadith. I read the Bhagavad Gita, talked with people. And, you know, in the end, realized that, Catholicism has a claim of truth which is unique. Christianity has a claim of truth in Jesus, Catholicism in the magisterium. And I would say the one key turning point, and this is uh, where the internet comes in, Mm -hmm. because I worked for a telecom company at the beginning of the web, the very beginning of the web. (laughs) And so I was able to go online and find church documents that normally the ordinary Catholic would never have been able to find because they'd be tucked away in a theology library somewhere. And so I actually read the controversial stuff like Humanae Vitae and discovered the incredible beauty of the truth. Mm. So this beauty of truth leading to goodness, the full triad was there. And so uh, in the end, I, I sort of yielded mm. to, uh, to truth and yielded to confidence and essentially realized 
yeah, the church is full of human beings, but the thing that makes it different is it's animated by the Holy Spirit. And so, my the ecclesial side of my my faith journey was about finding the spirit in the church. I think it's it's really so cool. uh, interesting that you've touched on two of the things we spoke about in the first half, and that is the you know the the flaws in in the church and how we respond to them and how many people are doing so perhaps in not the most life-giving way. And also the use of the internet or social media. You know, you were one of the first tweeting bishops, at least as far as I recall. Uh, how would you see those two, two things together in terms of bishop, the continued role of bishops using this tool uh, to perhaps respond to some of the, the flaws in the church in a more positive way? Well, for me... Uh very often I find that in the church we're using the internet or other tools. Uh, social media is a relatively recent invention, mm-hmm. believe it or not, when it comes to internet. We're often using it as a way to try and push out a message, to push out a message. But I think there's another level, and this is where the social part of social media comes in, is that it can create a, a forum or various fora for dialogue and encounter. Uh, you want to go out and meet people, that's a place where you can do it. Presently, I'm active on Reddit. Uh, There's a Catholicism forum on Reddit, and so I actually have a little tag that's labeled Bishop there, and, you know, so that people know that when I'm commenting, it really is, is me, it's a bishop. But I find that it's a place for genuine, honest exchange. Talking about a more toxic kind of exchange that sometimes happens, I believe it's important to be present even there, not so much because we're necessarily going to convince those who are kind of bound up in bitterness, but very often there are people who are listening in. The internet term for that is the lurkers Mm -hmm. who aren't going to comment, but Mm -hmm. they just want to hear what people are saying. And if you can be there and provide a reasonable, charitable voice within that context, very often, those who are getting worked up realize, gee, I, I maybe I have to be challenged to kind of tone it down. And other people who are listening in will say, oh, this is a voice of reason and of charity. And so it becomes a way to win over the, the silent listeners. And we have to be present for them. We can never forget them. They're part of the equation as well. I never even would have thought of that because <laughs> I'm not that present in dialogue. I'm one of the, like when I use social media, which isn't a lot. It is to send out a message to let people know stuff who I'm connected with one way or another. But I I haven't engaged a lot actually at all in dialogue. Well, one of the fun things, and then, and and it's like, so, so I used to work in this field and and my team used to to monitor social and and we had all sorts of crazy tools that would do it. uh, So it wasn't always manual, but one of the things you quickly recognize, especially when you've got very uh, fancy and expensive tools as we did, uh, is, is that there's actually a very small vocal minority that are bringing that toxicity, but as small as they are, they are so persistent that they, that it, it appears that there's an overwhelming toxic element, but the reality is it's actually fairly narrow. Small but loud. It's, it's the exact same thing within the parish, within the diocese, at any, in any, mm-hmm social entity you've got people at either end people who who speak in a life-giving way and, and move things in a healthy direction or people who are very negative and, and move things in a in an unhealthy direction and i think of the research of gallup in their right. idea of engaged unengaged and actively disengaged they actually say for organizational health you need four engaged people so four very positive people to neutralize the toxicity of one mm-hmm unhealthy person. So that just gives us a, a, a sense of perspective in, in how much we need uh, those positive voices to speak, speak up. Uh, Bishop Tom, uh, you are, I'm wondering, I want to push back to the conversation you had with the nuncio because, I mean, I'm sure one of the things must have been, you must have been a little surprised by that he was asking you as a, as a 40 year old, did you, did you bring that up as a, a reason? Because I think of, it's a very biblical thing, a, a very biblical response to a call to give all the reasons why you shouldn't be called, right? <laughs> well, uh, as I say, I, I first got the phone call. I just come back from uh, a funeral. I had just done a funeral that morning. It was a hot summer day and I was sitting in my room and the phone rang. It was an Ottawa area number. I have a lot of family there, so but I didn't recognize the number. So I answer, and the voice says, Hello, I'm phoning from the Apostolic Nunciature. It's important that I see you right away. I said, Okay, well, who are you? 
I said, well, it's the nuncio. Oh, I, uh, I, at that point, to be honest, I had a feeling what it was about because we knew that the archbishop had requested some auxiliaries. And so I, I didn't really put myself on the list. I'd only been a priest for nine years. I wasn't even in double digits oh, in yeah. terms of priesthood. <laughs> so, I mean, it would be ludicrous to think that, you know, you're on the list. But anyway, I guess the Holy Spirit does crazy things sometimes. And that's all right. That's, it's his church. Uh, so yeah, I, I encountered the nuncio. I had a chance to sort of, you know, think about what my reaction might be because, uh, I had certainly spent the night in prayer, um, because I had a little trouble getting to sleep, to be honest. Uh, (laughs) but getting to Ottawa, driving there, meeting with him, he was very kind. He was very kind. And so it just, it was one of those moments where you, uh, you got to jump into the deep end, you know, mm. and so you do it in trust. And did, did he make any comment about your, your age at all or did he? Well, he did. He said, uh, it is true that you are young, but that is a defect time will take care of on its own. So. <laughs> and I, I want to just, I, just before we, 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 we turn to it in a bit of a different direction with this conversation, you actually were unique with another bishop in Canada who was a classmate of mine, and uh, Bishop Christian Riesbeck, the auxiliary bishop in Ottawa. And it's unique because you were in the same parish growing up. Not only were you in the same parish, you were in the same First Communion class. And not <laughs> only right. were you in the same First Communion class, you were next to each other in line in the opening <laughs> procession. I think we have a photo. There's a photograph right there for those watching, those of you who are listening on iTunes. You're going to have to check out the, the video podcast to see. <laughs> you're going to want to see this. Two little boys side by side, one with a bow tie, one without. No, he's wearing a bow tie. One's a white bow tie. Yeah, one's, one's a white, white they're but both so Bishop Tom, you're white bow tie. And Bishop Christian is black bolted. So that's smart. That's the two future bishops. And let's flip to another. Pi- there we go. There they are. And Bishop Tom is still in white. You're still in white. And Bishop Christian is in some other color. So, um, yeah, there you go. That's that's quite remarkable. That was a small German parish, I believe, wasn't it? In, in that's Ottawa right. or Montreal? Small German parish in Ottawa. In Ottawa, in Ottawa. Yeah. My family has a strong connection to that parish. Yeah, wonderful. Well, let's give your Sunday school teacher all the props for that. She yeah, really no good kidding. Job, so. <laughs> so I'm going to ask you a, a question because I don't understand uh, much about how how, um, how the Canadian Conference of Bishops works, but I, I wonder what it was it like being a young bishop and then finding yourself in, in sort of the milieu of, of, of the, the bishop role, but also at a national level. So what was your experience of that? What Was it Simple, well, easy. I, I was ordained a bishop at the uh, beginning of September, September 10th, and the Canadian Conference has its annual meeting, annual general meeting. We call it the plenary, also in September. So oh. I got there very fresh as a bishop. <laughs> and so when they opened up the debates, the discussion, I jumped to the microphone because I wanted to be the first one to say something. At my, So I opened the discussion <laughs> by saying, as this will be the first of my 34 plenaries, I thought that it would be a chance to open the discussion. They roared. They thought that was hilarious. <laughs> a few of them went, oh, my Lord, 34 of them. They couldn't believe it. way too keen. <laughs> so, well, because, you know, Freedom 75, right? That's when we were retired bishops. And so I've got a few of them ahead of me, God willing, God willing. Uh, The conference is great. It's an opportunity for bishops to come together. Uh, There's a a lot of fraternity, which Mm. is really nice. There's business. There are things to be discussed. There are commission meetings and what have you. But we have to remember for a lot of the bishops, uh, being in Montreal, other dioceses are close by. There are other bishops close by. There are retired bishops who live here. But for someone who's in a diocese that's perhaps a bit more remote, where they might see brother bishops relatively infrequently, how do we bishops express our mutual care and support? For me, that's that's a burden the Lord has placed on my heart. You know, we we talk about priest share groups, uh, you know, priest support groups. Where's the bishop support group? And so things like the plenary, those become occasions for that. And I'm glad to say that we do have the opportunity to live those moments together. So that was a a really nice discovery as part of the Canadian conference. Then, of course, there's the business side, which you have to do. Uh, And those, I mean, that, that the topics will vary from year to year. Bishop Tom, I'm really curious, uh, your perspective, you know, you're, you're, 
looking, you're a few years in now, but you probably still have another 30 years to go before freedom, <laughs> uh, freedom 75. But as you, as a, as a leader in, in the church in Quebec, uh, but also within Canada, as you look out, you know, we're obviously Divine Renovation. We're passionate about parish renewal and working a little bit on the question of diocesan renewal because the two are inter- intimately connected. What do you see? What's the lay of the land? What are your what's what's the Lord stirring in your heart and putting in your heart right now as as a as a leader? Well, certainly. Uh if I was looking for a challenging assignment, being a bishop in Quebec fits the bill. Uh, being a bishop fits the bill. But here in Quebec, especially given the whole history of secularization and even anti-clericalism, uh, there are a lot of challenges being here. But at the same time, we see many fruits. Uh, on the net, I occasionally come across people sort of dissing Quebec or you know, saying, oh, it's a lost cause for the gospel. Nothing is a lost cause That's for right. the gospel. Amen. My firm conviction is that uh, we have to shift from a church where we are okay with simply having an elite that is engaged and mm-hmm. everyone else, it's okay if they're passive, yep. to a truly mutually engaged model where we have to find the way to knit together the charisms, the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to all of us in virtue of our baptism, and also the hierarchical gifts. When I look at the evangelical churches, for example, they are often very strong on the charisms, but because they don't have a hierarchy to help them stay true to a a doctrine of faith, uh, to a certain minimal level of, of ecclesiastical discipline, they often splinter. You know, you'll see a lot of division and having the same discussions over and over and over again, uh, renegotiating, you might say, the, the base parameters of their community. The flip side for us as Catholics, mm-hmm. and we also see it in the Orthodox Church, is that we can wind up so focused on people who are professionally religious, quote-unquote, that it becomes so much easier for us to say, well, you know, we've got the resources and we've got trained people, so we'll just take care of it. And, you know, you go off and look after your family and look after your job and, you know, just pray for us and, you know, send us a few vocations and a few bucks here and there. Uh, that's great, but we need to find a way to really knit these things together. So my, I guess, model, I call it the skeleton and the muscles, where the the, the fundamental aspect is the muscles. That's what moves the body forward, and that's the charisms. And the skeleton, that provides a structure to allow the muscles to work. It even provides leverage resistance. Sometimes resistance is necessary in order to really allow the muscles to work. But the two have to go together. If all you've got are muscles, then you're just going to be a blob on the floor. And if all you've got is skeleton, then you're just dry bones. And so we've got to have those two aspects working together. And that for me is, it's part of my, it's a core image for me in how I see the renewal of the church happening. I do not see the renewal of the church happening without this kind of massive engagement across the board. That's right. If we just, if we just wait for more vocations to rain down from on high and hope our stock portfolios do really well, so we'll get the money we need, we're going to be, it's just not going to happen. And it's not, the way the New Testament describes the church work. At best, we're going to have minimal impact. Even if that model was successful, you're you're basically creating a church that's going to be working at about 4% capacity because what is the task of leadership in the church but to mobilize the baptized, to mobilize uh, an army of missionary disciples, think, you know, that image from Ezekiel of the dry bones of an entire army standing up on its feet, you know, to Ephesians 4, to equip the saints to do the work of ministry. I, I think of uh, the the building, St. Benedict Church building is a beautiful building, and there's a, there, there are stained glass windows in the foyer. It's very, very interesting. The previous pastor who, who actually did, did this with great intentionality, as you look, as you go out of the building, so as you're walking to the exit, on the right side are two stained glass windows. On the left side, two stained glass windows. On the right side, there's a stained glass window of Pope Gregory the Great, who sent uh-huh. missionaries to, to England from, from Rome, and also an image of Peter preaching to Cornelius uh, from the Acts of the Apostles. So you have the Petrine magisterial dimension. On the other side 
is a stained glass window of Paul preaching the gospel and a stained glass window of Pentecost. So you have the evangelistic Pentecostal Holy Spirit dimension, and it's these two things together. Mm. And I think that's a, a, a profound thing that the build, the way in which the, the building actually teaches. So as people go out of the church or missioned out into the world, the rem- hopefully if they see it, they, they're reminded to preach the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit, but also connected to that Petrine, that, that hierarchical dimension as well. I love that. I love that teaching. I love that understanding. But, you know, as a lay person, I know there's lay people listening to this podcast. They're going to go, yeah, great in theory. Uh, how do we do this? How do we do? Yeah, gr- great. We have more great theory. But, you know, I, I remember being at a diocesan event, which I'm never really totally excited to go to. And you made me go, Father James. <laughs> and I, I fought tooth and nail, but he made me go. And uh, that happens from time to time. And uh, I, I oath to myself, I wasn't going to... That was s- the hierarchical authority. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was. No, that was your friendship, actually. <laughs> and so so uh, I oath to myself, I wasn't going to say a word. So my goal was, I'm just not going to say anything because I find anytime I talk at those things, it never gets received well and and I get frustrated and it's not helpful. But I was the last person not to have presented in my small group. And one of the things I said from the microphone in front of everybody was, you know, I've, as a lay person, I've never understood how to support priests. There's a chasm between the ordained and laity. And we say we want to do all these things together. But if we're honest, there's this chasm between us. And I don't know how to support priests. Well, as soon as I said that, every eye in the place fell to the floor, including all the clergy. You could have heard a pin drop. And I just wondered to myself, why am I even here? You know, because we know things in our head, but we don't know how. People don't know how. So I'm wondering as a bishop, you know, what's your, what, what's your, how do you see yourself trying to actualize that? Like what obstacles are you up against and what kinds of things do you feel called to do about it? Because we, yeah. again, yeah. Right there. Well, there, there are multiple aspects to this. Um, with regards to the hierarchical side, I think we need to uh, sort of reformulate our mission. So as an official within a diocesan structure, it's to sort of rethink how we're working to get out of the model of we need to do everything and to get into the model of being that that uh, structure that provides leverage, to be a lever. You know, a lever needs to have a certain stiffness in order to lift, but its purpose is to actually lift something, you know? And so... You want to have the right combination of, of length and stiff, you know, a reach and a, and a stability that allows for that to happen. So we've got to rethink our diocesan structures to a certain extent and, you know, get our act in order on that level. And that's where things like, well, to use language of divine renovation, having a, a leadership team. A team provides leadership. It's to provide that reach. It's to provide some element of structure, guidance direction, those are things that we need to provide. But we also need to give ourselves a structure that allows people to kind of attach on with their various gifts. What I have discovered as a bishop going around visiting parishes is that there are lots of people who would love to get involved, mm-hmm. but they have they feel they have no place to get involved. And mm-hmm. I have challenged all my parishes. I've said to them, if people, if you suddenly had a uh, uh, conversion experience in this community where every parishioner came to you and said, each of us is willing to give five hours a week to the mission of the church. What would you have them do? After you filled up the lectors and the Eucharistic ministers <laughs> and, you know, the pastoral council, and you've, you've, you've successfully used 5% of those people's time, what would you do with the other 95%? And if the answer is we don't know, then we have a leadership problem. Yeah, that's right. Okay? And so what we did in Montreal uh, among the English-speaking parishes, which I was leading at the time, we actually created a new organization using an old name, an old idea. We call it Catholic Action. And the old idea of Catholic Action was to wed the baptismal gifts and the hierarchical gifts together. And its purpose is to allow people to, first of all, discover their gifts. We're assuming people are desiring to be disciples. If they're not disciples yet, then there's a whole other mission. But yeah. for those who are saying, I'm willing 
give me something to do. Help me find my place. Then we, our job is to help them find their gifts, to help them gather, meet each other. Very often people have similar ideas, but they've never met each other. Find meeting places. Uh, there's a, a, a trust fund we have that we're kind of repurposing. Uh, I call it venture capital for the kingdom of God. You know, so as to be able to provide seed money to start projects, because I find when you have worthwhile things, the money comes, the people will donate, they'll even sacrifice their own money in order to put into something. And so with that process, you, you give people almost like laboratories to learn, to experiment, to grow. And then from there, you see which seeds are going to flourish and and bear much fruit. We have to give ourselves room to almost uh, give ourselves permission to, to fail. The perfect is the enemy of the good. Amen. You know, let's do good things. And if they're not perfect, well, let's just keep working at them. But let's not think, oh, it's not perfect, so we can't do anything. That's foolishness. You've, you've hit it twice there on the, on the importance of vision, because the question of, of what would you do if, if 80% of your people gave you five hours beyond filling, you know, p- plugging the usual holes, well, honestly, I would, I would, I would agree that probably the vast majority, that many pastors would would probably not even have thought about that, and and that that's a question of vision because that's a question of imagine if what would happen, and I think that's an area where we need to continue to challenge those in parish leadership to begin to formulate a a, a dream of of what could be because if I if we've got no idea of what could be, we're never going to work so that it can be. Um, and, and so that's really, really it's not key. Just, it's not just parish leadership. It's sometimes among the people themselves. Oh, of course. Yes, absolutely. You know, uh, I visited one parish once where I had done the, or the Statistics Canada census analysis, and I had found that the number of English-speaking, it was an English-speaking parish, so the number of English-speaking people in that territory had gone up. But as I spoke with people, they were all saying, oh, you know, our parish is shrinking, or, or you know, people are moving away, there's... And they had given themselves all kinds of reasons to explain why they were in decline, when in fact, statistically, they should be growing. And so, uh, Mm. hello. (laughs) You know, but uh, when you look at a rate of religious practice that is extremely low, let's say it's 5% here, that looks terrible. But the flip side is, if you can convince one out of 19 people to restore their religious faith and practice, you've doubled your numbers on Sunday. So surely it can't be that hard. That is less than the number of people who think Elvis is still alive. So if if we can't convince at least that many people that Jesus is still alive, then we've got a problem. Well, and and, my son was playing hockey in Quebec. And so I'd go up there to visit him and and I'm just watching what's happening there. And, And the reality is, and I see so many other priests, pastors in this situation where to think like that is exhausting because they're already exhausted simply trying to keep up with the sacramental demand on their life without any staff. You know, the joke is most parishes have a, a pastor, a part-time secretary, uh, you know, maybe a housekeeper and a small dog. And, and that's and so just doing the sacraments is absolutely exhausting. So to think missionally... It's impossible for them because they don't have any emotional energy left. And that's why working out of a team is critical because we boost each other up when we're down. And we also have blind spots. And anyone who thinks they can lead outside of a team in this current culture my heavens, you're, you think a lot of yourself and a lot more than I probably do because I don't know that it's possible, at least not to have amazing impact and results. And I really believe God is calling us to have amazing impact and results in this time in history. The market, to your point, Bishop, is gigantic. Yeah. And if we're not growing it, we have to say, why? One, do we want to? And if we do, we can, if we dare to lead differently. Wow. Uh, it's one of those classic Ron Huntley, hold him back because he's going to start moving forward. I love that. Uh, so, so Bishop, here's one of the things I, I heard tell of when it comes to you. Uh, when when uh, One of the things that's important to this this mission or this ministry, pardon me, is that we, we stay rooted in the parish. But I also understand you uh, also decided you wanted to stay rooted in the parish. Can you tell me a little bit about that? 
Well, uh, it was one of the ideas that I had. I had been doing these various parish visits. Uh, just to give you a bit of context, for me, a parish visit was not showing up just for confirmation. <laughs> uh, but uh, seriously, sometimes that's how it's interpreted. There's a part of our tradition which is going and doing the official parish visitation, which in my experience has been neglected in many areas, mm-hmm. probably because in the old days, to go to a parish given transport was not easy. You didn't just go for an afternoon. You It was an investment of time, and so you spent time there. Uh, now that we can just pop in our car, go down the highway, and it's done, and now that with communication, we can get a report from the parish as opposed to actually having mm-hmm. to meet people, perhaps it uh, we've been... It's been too easy for us to reduce the kind of commitment that a parish visit is. So what I would do, I would go to the parish and I would celebrate all the masses on a weekend. I would move into the rectory, live at the parish for the week, and then celebrate all the masses the second weekend. And then I would come back some weeks later with a PowerPoint presentation and reflect back to the parish what it is that I had observed at a Mm. public meeting. And so... This would allow me to really get the pulse of the parish. I would allow, I would meet all the parish groups during that week, and I would also give people a chance to simply contact me and you know, anybody who wanted to say anything. It was a way to sort of cut the layers of, of hierarchy and have a one-on-one with people and hear their real concerns. So doing that and seeing that and seeing the potential for renewal in our parishes uh, seeing the problems, but seeing the phenomenal potential for renewal, that's when I thought, you know, for me as a bishop, very often the question I would get is, Bishop, where's your parish? Where's your church? And I would have to say to people, I don't have one. And that just sounded so odd. And the looks on people's faces when I would say that made me realize they found that odd. How can you be leading parishes and not have one of your own? It just didn't compute spontaneously for people. So I, uh, I was already celebrating a Mass uh, Sunday evenings. We called it the, officially the late Sunday Mass, unofficially the last chance Mass, because it was your last chance to get to church. And it was in a church, a parish that was central to the diocese in terms of transport networks. And so as uh, the pastor there was going to be transferred, and we had a, a younger priest who uh, was ready to serve more, um, but perhaps not as a pastor at that point. I don't think it's good to put people in that kind of role too quickly. Mm -hmm. So I became pastor. He was my assistant. I still had my downtown job, so he would handle much of the things, the the sacramental ministry that you you mentioned, those things that had to be handled during the week. But I was able to bring an aspect of, of leadership and vision. And so the two sides really worked together. And so, uh, he's still the, uh, priest on site. I'm still the pastor of the parish. And, you know, it's our dream that that can be a a hub for renewal of the various parishes as people come and gather there from all across the diocese. That's great. And I I believe I was in Montreal in, uh, I think, in November last year and visited another parish that in many ways is perhaps becoming a bit of a a hub or a sign of hope for, for, for renewal. And that is uh, St. Ignatius Parish and Father Michael, Father Michael Leclerc. Uh, Bishop Tom, you had a role in perhaps uh, helping mobilize that parish. Can you, can you tell, can you tell our listeners and our viewers that, uh, that story? Well, Father uh, Michael uh, was already the parochial administrator there. He had not yet been named pastor, uh, but we were in the process in the Diocese of Montreal of sending people for studies. And so uh, you're being very humble, Father James, but you may remember that breakfast we had in London <laughs> at the uh, Alpha Conference. And that is where I had asked you, would it be possible to send a priest for a, a time of learning at your parish? And so from there, you spoke with your team and we were able to work out a six-month internship for Father Michael. And so Father Michael, he struck me as a person with the right combination of gifts and at the right place in his priesthood, mm. where he's got enough experience to see some things that work and don't, mm. but he's he's also at the point, a bit like me when I was starting as a bishop, he didn't have any illusions that he had all the answers. And so a good place to be in that that spot of openness to learn. And 
pastoral zeal. And so I think Father Michael did very well there. That's certainly the impression I had. And he has brought back, he didn't bring back, uh, he didn't come back as the clone of James Mallon. That's for sure. He's still Father Michael LeClaire. But I think, honestly, that is a sign of health for the divine renovation methodology. Because if people had to become, and I'm sure you've heard this, I'm willing to bet there are people who say, well, that's great for Father Mallon, but uh, that, that won't work for me. You don't have to be Father Mallon. You don't have to be Father Michael LeClaire. You have to be yourself, right. but work out of the same kind of insights mm-hmm. as they apply locally. And I think that's what Father Michael has managed to do. Having a leadership team where people have complementary gifts, uh, that should be a pretty universal insight. And so to be able to apply those at the parish, the parish is seeing fruits of renewal. It, from my point of view, one of my mantras is do simple things well. Mm. Don't go looking for the great big magic bullet. Do the simple things well and then work to continuously improve and challenge yourself to see what's blocking us from the next level mm. of doing the simple things well. Mm, that's so cool. You know, it's interesting because you, your discernment on, I'd be interested as a coach, I'd be interested in your strength things because you did an amazing job of choosing Father Michael to come, you know, and I, I even wonder, you know, as a diocese, like you say, you send people away for um, education, which is awesome. Love it. You know, how does sending Father Michael to to St. Benedict Parish for an intern, how does that compare from a fruit perspective to sending other people away for studies? Is you share with me your perspective on that? Well, it, it's really a question of uh, helping to read what people's talents and gifts are and trying to find places for them to be able to lead and work out of their gifts. Mm. Uh, if you, I mean, I, I, it's like sports, you know, you, there are certain football players you will want to be quarterbacks and others you don't, uh, doesn't mean they can't be on the team. It's just, they have a different place on the team. But if you're the coach, you've got to put the right person in the right position. Amen. Otherwise your team is not going to win. It's it's not that complicated. So, well, yeah, Thank you. Uh, like with any any team, you wind up with some players who are injured. Uh, you wind up having to switch players around, and you know there are sometimes conflicts in the locker room. You know, I mean, there are all <laughs> kinds of issues that can arise <laughs> that you've got to mediate. You know, yeah. so it's it's a constant moving target. Well, F- Father Michael, but I, I really have... believe in 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 helping people live and work out of their gifts. But Father Michael does have one complaint, and I think uh, we're going to deflect He didn't the like the weather in Halifax that much, I know. <laughs> well, I was in Montreal. Don't get me going about weather. Uh, but uh, no, he has one big complaint, uh, and we're quite um, willing to lay that the blame of that at your, at your feet. And that is that we have wrecked his golf game. Because <laughs> before he came, he said he was a pretty good golfer. He got out several times a week, and now... He's got no time because he he's got an energy and a passion to invest that time and energy elsewhere. He's got a he shared with us. He's got a zeal and a joy in his priesthood that he he's never experienced before. And he and um, his golf game is gone. And it's all your fault. <laughs> well, There's fun. a word in French, uh, morosité. It means to be morose, uh, but it doesn't. It's got a stronger connection in French. And I think that's one of the things that holds a lot of us back. Yeah. We, we have this defeatist yes. approach, you know, where we say, well, you know, uh, to as a priest, I have to look after myself. And so I'm going to make sure to take time to go golfing. And, and okay, mm-hmm. I have no problem with self-care. I think that's very healthy. Yeah. But what I, I see is we need success stories. We need yes. those. We need those joyful, zealous stories. That's. Success. There's a saying in business, nothing succeeds like success. Mm-hmm. And and that it was a component we needed. Uh, I can restructure the administrative side of the diocese. I can try and find the lay people to contribute their gifts. But among the clergy, I, I think there's only so many diocesan meetings and diocesan policies you can put forward. Right. There's a co-leadership as brothers that we need. 
And to have guys like Father Michael providing that very spontaneously through their witness is extremely mm. powerful. Yeah. There's, um, it's uh, it's exciting that that you were able to send Father Michael here to us, and that he was able to learn. But also, he stayed connected, and he's part of uh, he's getting leadership coaching through the Divine Renovation Network. So you, Ron, you and the coaches are continue to invest in him along with you, Father James. And so for for priests and pastors who might be listening, who might feel like they're at that same point that that you know Father Michael was before he arrived here in in, in Halifax, that maybe. That maybe that's an opportunity for them yes. to. So if you're a really great golfer, um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yet you have a, a, a sense that it, there's something more to life and ministry, you're right. reach out to us. Yeah, you can find us on <laughs> divinerenovation.net, maybe connected with our coaches and our coaching team. Bishop, I wanted to thank you for being on this podcast. It is such a treat to be able to, to get to spend time with you and hear some of the things that are on your heart and, and even just the way you appreciate uh, you approach your ministry. So thank you so very much. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. And thank you for everybody else who was able to join us this week. If, if this was of, of service to you, if you think there was some value in it, perhaps you'll be courageous enough to hit the share button. We talked about, you know, there's not enough positive stuff perhaps on social media. This is your opportunity. If you're, if you're a viewer, mm. if you're a listener, this is your opportunity to offer something that is both encouraging and, and positive into the social media framework. So I encourage you to, to hit share, mm. add a couple comments on whether this was, if this was of value to you. And we look forward to connecting with you again in the coming weeks. God bless. Thank you.